live. Uh, welcome back to the show. I'm Tyler. DJ here. And uh, you guys are listening to Pores and Pixels tonight. We have um, two guests with us from Ruby Shard Games, Nathan and Kyle. Welcome, guys. Hey, glad to be here. Um, i tell you what, before we get started, um, let's talk through our pours for the evening. So it is rule in the four episodes, five episodes we've done so far that guests go first. So, gentlemen, what are you drinking tonight? Um, water and also Blue Moon, so also water. Yeah, that's a solid choice. <laughs> I, have, water. I have water and I have some Coke. Also a solid um, choice. Uh, are you a spicy water fan or are you a, a, a regular water fan? <laughs> What's up? Are so you a spicy water fan or are you a regular water fan? Regular water, regular water. So I used to not drink sparkling water at all and then i started working in tech and like every floor ever has a refrigerator and all they have is lacroix that's it right so now i'm like addicted to this stuff uh although we're we're liquid deathing tonight so um dj what are you drinking tonight uh to continue my stone brewing uh series i'm drinking very plain named here uh hazy ipa uh it's pretty good it's about six and six point seven percent is that the one with Um, all the flowers on the can yeah, yeah. As more effort went into designing the can than I think to crafting the beer. I'd give it like a, <laughs> like a five point six on the hazy scale. Yeah, it's got some um, Hendrix vibes to the the can art. Yeah, it, it's good. Um, I was expecting better from Stone, but I mean it's it's not bad by any means. Yeah, but in a twenty dollar pack, sometimes it's like, hey guys, come on. <laughs> yeah, they should have just gave me three yeah. more uh, fear movie lines, and I'm unhappy. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, so I'm bringing in the hot stuff this evening and you guys listening can't see this, but, uh, I brought out the stag junior for this evening, um, which is a Kentucky bourbon from the Buffalo trace distillery. This is batch 14, which is from like three years ago. And I've got like quarter inch in the bottom left. It's really good, but I've been babying it since I won't find another one ever. Um, mm-hmm. and if I get sloppy by the end of this, it's cause it's 130 proof. So Oh, jeez. Yeah, well, hey, we're chasing, so. Anyway. Oh, yeah, I've, I've done close to that. I did it with a Bacardi 110 or something um, as pregame for a work expedition. Um, back when I was teaching, we did trips to Universal. So I did two uh, hurricanes from Petty O'Brien's, and they're Bacardi like 101, 110, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um did that one roller coasters and proceeded to have seven or eight more beers throughout the night. <laughs> that sounds like it a hell of a good idea. Hell of a work adventure. <laughs> oh yeah, that was great. Well, I'm glad we got drink tickets. Yeah. Nathan, I know you went to Michigan State and I've I've been down there. Uh, Michigan State can party. They can, man. Uh, yeah, I had one where um, a friend of mine got it was a friend surprise party in a big house and the guy who had the party like who, who was it for he ended up throwing the blow over the floor and then there was another friend of mine that was like trying to jump out the window it was like a one-story house though so like i had to like <laughs> yeah. grab him from the window and like throw him back inside the house yes yeah, <laughs> yeah no, i guess well Texas a and gets well too Oh uh, yeah, I've heard. I, I know some people from who went to Texas A and M, and they said that like Robert Earl Keen will just like show up and start playing music, and like everyone will just start getting trashed. Yeah, that's what I heard too. I never, I never seen that, but yeah, I definitely heard that happens a couple times. Yeah. Well, uh, gentlemen, cheers, and we're gonna jump cheers. right into it. So, um, you guys are from Ruby Shark Games, and something that we thought that was really, really interesting about the company is that this was kind of conglomerate, like a conglomerate of, of developers that are working on other projects and who came together for a bit of a passion project, I think to start with. So can you guys just kind of walk us through, like, how did that come together? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I started the project because I, no, my background was in teaching before. So I um, went to Full Sail University. I started teaching there. And then I kind of identified some problems that I saw with the uh, the level design, level design teaching process where um, a lot of the level designers were being expected to write code and had a very unstructured environment. So it was basically just, here's a very loose criteria, go out and build a thing. And 
I kind of thought, well, I really want to make like a, a Titanfall based wall running game because that just sounds fucking awesome. Um, and also, what if I built like a stronger criteria of what we're trying to do? Um, identified like better, better, more clear goals. Um, and then I had seen a lot of projects rise up and fail pretty quickly. And I was thinking, what, what are the commonalities with that? Well, a lot of them try to talk money right off the bat. And then a lot of them are just some dude coming into a room and saying, Hey guys, I have an idea. Let's, let's, let's try this. Um, rather than coming into the room saying, all right, here's a, a working prototype of, uh, what I want to build. I just want to scale off of it. And here's the vision of what I want to do. Um, so, like, right in the very beginning, I had, like, a working prototype of just running, gunning, um, like, the, the base core mechanics. I should have done more, um, but I, I at least had that. Um, and then our first few meetings were just planning out what we wanted to do. So we had a whole GDD written in the first few weeks, um, had a vision for what we wanted to do, um, what is like a, a what is a GDD for, for people listening? Oh, yeah, a uh, game design document. It's basically, it outlines the um, design intention of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything from an outline of the levels that we wanted in the game, what their um, description was. So like we have a, a, the end level is a factory where you go and you tear down the, the factory and prevent future robots from being generated. Um, and that has a very clear reason for why you're doing that. Uh, one of the earlier levels that was cut was a hydroelectric dam that was uh, supplying power to the rest of the game. And so, you know, you want to kill the power so um, that we can just fences and at least temporarily halt some more production and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so we had that outlined, and then we also had like charts for what we wanted our um, action pacing to look like. So the start of our very level would be a bit more mellow, and then it would have a rising action and then a falling action, kind of like uh, the story arc where you have the rising action, climax, and the denouement, and everything with with that pretty pretty similar um, intensity chart. Uh, yeah, well, it's, and it's then, funny you mentioned the the money part, like people coming in, like I want to do this for money, and like. The thing that drew us to reach out to you guys was it was a passion project. And it's been a kind of a theme in the last couple of episodes. We talked about like when people put the passion in the games, like the the consumer can feel that when they're playing the game. And that's what made us reach out to you guys because we are, we're all about it. We love the passion and back in the games, we're down and tired of people shoving out content just for money. Yeah. I, I think yeah. um something that I find interesting is like when you, work on something that you really care about in, in a way that's like true to, you know, the, the vision that you had when you, when you, you know, had the idea is that it won't be for everyone, but for the people that it lands with, like it really lands with them. You know what I mean? Um, and, and I think that, um, like one of the, one of the, the games that, that has hit us recently that has really landed with DJ and I, I don't think it's going to be for everyone. I mean, it's, it's been through some controversy already has been ready or not. That's out on steam right now. And, you mm-hmm. know, as level designers, if you guys haven't seen that, they have some of the best environmental st- storytelling that I've seen, uh, pretty well bar none. Like I can't think of something that is doing a better job of telling the story without narrative. You know what I mean? Like you, you can, you can clearly see what's going off and look at the levels. So, yeah, those levels will make you want to go to church afterwards. <laughs> yeah, they're they're pretty dark, but um, I just I think it's so cool when when we see studios that are like, you know what? Like I I realized that we could crank out this, you know, cookie cutter first person shooter or whatever, right? Because that's what you know everybody wants. Like I mean, you could make a certain franchise every year, right, for forever, and people are going to buy it whether it's good or not. Um, and I, I think it's awesome when people are like, you know, they, they kick the mold, so to speak, and make make the thing that they want to make. I also, when you said that you wanted to make a Titanfall game, I have to say that makes me happy that there are other gamers out there and people who care about just the idea of, you know, running walls and, and, and having some fast-paced combat because I think Titanfall is probably one of the great tragedies in first-person shooters in the last, like, five to six years just because it was so good and it it's like completely dead right now, as far as I know. Yeah. Uh, so Nathan, what, uh, so what motivates you for like putting time into Ruby shark games after you work your, you know, your normal nine to five. 
Yeah, no, so essentially when I first joined Ruby Shark, because um, like, yeah, it was a passion project, but a big thing with it too was it was so a bunch of designers can make stuff for the portfolio because we're all like, you know, trying to get to industry. And I joined a project probably two or three months after Kyle and them started. Yeah, about that. Yeah, about that. And I mean, for me, so I essentially started as a level designer and I'm still there now, but I'm now like a lead LD. So I'm essentially in charge of like, uh, I think seven other designers as well. Um, and for me, what kind of motivates me is the fact that being able to help people and to help them like achieve like their goals. Um, I think right now, actually, we have one designer who I think is in the current steps of like hopefully going to be in the job soon. But the other, the other um, six all now have jobs in the industry as um, designers in some sense. Um, and we have, we have one in QA. Mm-hmm. You think your background of like playing, you know, collegiate sports has anything did that help you? being a lead level designer, you're, you're in charge of people? I think so. I not probably, but I, I think what's interesting is that with playing sports and game dev, they're very similar more than people realize. Um, like in football, you know, you can't, it, it, you need more than one guy to score a touchdown, right? Like core, like the lineman got a block, quarterback, uh, throw receivers, run back, guy catch. Um, big, big games are the same way, you know, designers got to design stuff, but programmers have to help, um, get the tech out so we can create things. Artists have to make things. QA has to test them. Production has to make sure everything goes on track. So I think me going from um, sports to games really prepared me because I already had a mentality of like, we got to do whatever it takes to win. And in games, it's like, no, we got to do what we got to do to get this game finished. You know, whether if I had to cut some of my stuff or someone has to like, you know, do more or anything in that sense. So. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a, an interesting, yeah, you're right. That's not something that you would normally like correlate together as game development and, and football as American football for everyone not listening here in the U S but um, yeah, that's a, that's a really you want neat. to use with your hands, not your feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I saw somebody talking about that the other, this is such a random aside, but um, they were talking about the reason that it's called football is because as far as like, when it was named, it's because a lot of sports were mounted at the time, and you play this on your feet. Which I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I would have never made that connection. I thought it was just to piss soccer fans off. I don't, I mean, maybe. <laughs> it sounds like the American thing to do. Yeah, it was probably 50-50. Who knows? Um, cool. So, yeah, no, the, the next thing we, we wanted to ask you guys about, actually, is this is more of a question from an end user perspective so like as the people playing the games we know well not all of us but if you really are are thoughtful about games and game design and the way that this stuff comes together you have to realize that the developers are going to spend a lot more time on the level um you know developing granular detail and and just like you're really pouring you know your time and, and energy into it that a lot of people are going to be sprinting through your level, right? Like they might never notice a lot of the detail and work that you put in there. Um, like what, what is the drive, I guess, as the level designer, knowing that like, oh, I probably could get away with not doing a bunch of stuff that I'm going to do just because I find it important, um, just because people will, you know, end up missing a lot of it. Like what is, what's the motivation behind really going that, that extra mile and making sure that you're putting in the, the detail. And like we were talking about earlier, like environmental storytelling and that sort of stuff. I think, um, because someone will, I think it, it's always interesting when you can, um, go on Twitter and see somebody find an Easter egg in fallout new Vegas or something that nobody has seen for like 10 years. I'm pretty sure like Todd Howard said that there is at least a one Easter egg that they had in Skyrim that nobody has seen yet. That's unthinkable. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I mean, like someone will find the find um, that extra bit of detail, um, and you know sometimes we deliberately put in things that we don't want you to notice that still um, makes the game better. Like I, I was talking with some of my some of my other friends earlier today about about game dev and about level design and um, you know some of the things that level designers and environment artists will do to lead you through a space so that you know where you're going but you don't know why you know that. Um, for instance, in God of War, there's a sequence where you're walking through a cave and um, you just know to turn around a corner and climb up a chain that's uh, over to your your right. Um, but the reason why you do that is because you walk into the cave, you see this diagonal 
um, beam that is pointing up the direction that you need to go, and you see um, this light that's casting in um, by the beam, helping illuminate it and really just like making it pop. So the the line of there points up towards um, the area you need to go to. So your yards just kind of wander up there, and then as you start looking over there, um, there's you know, like the the chain drop down area which is where you actually need to go like your your intended player path um that comes into view and of course it has light outside of the the rest of the dark cave that really just screams look at me and a player should never consciously recognize oh i have lights i have leading lines and all this extra bullshit that is teaching me where i need to go but you'll just know so it's interesting as you're talking about that, and I, I know you, earlier you mentioned that you have a background in, in teaching level design. Like when it comes to like the literal discipline of level design, like how much psychology actually is there? Because what we're talking about right now is speaking to the subconscious. Like you don't realize that you're doing that thing, but you're exactly right. Like I can go into a level and immediately if you've played video games for more than 10 minutes, you get an idea of like, I know that I should be going there. But if someone was like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I just, I've been playing games for a long time and I know that that's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a lot of psychology, a lot of theory and stuff that goes in the LD that, of course, the average player is not going to know. Um, even for like new ever design levels, it's like I think about, okay, I want the player to feel scared and claustrophobic. So I have spaces that feel a bit small and narrow. And as they walk through this narrow space, they're going to see like the destination of like some building in the background. And they're like, oh, that's like a light in the tunnel. Then when they walk out the tunnel, it's like this huge vista being revealed. So yeah, there, there's a lot of like, like when, like when you get into the actual discipline and you start studying things, you'd be surprised about how much go, how much theory of this human psychology goes into it, even like with architecture and stuff as well. Um, I had an undergraduate degree in architecture and there's a lot of principles I took from that that I use into my designs because, you know, architecture is kind of like level design in the real world in a sense. So, but yeah, there's a whole bunch of that color theory, shape language, a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, that's fascinating. That um, I have one more branching thought that I want to ask you guys and then we'll kind of jump back into um, our quote-unquote scheduled programming, but... <laughs> um, what are as as level designers and, and people who do this professionally are there any games that stand out to you that you would use as an example say to students or people that you wanted to train as like the the you know this game or particular sector of a game or whatever is like chef's kiss level design like what are some of your favorites that's a good question there's so many uh, wait, do you want to get as granular as like a, a particular level in the game or like... Yeah, whatever comes to mind. Itself? Okay. Um, hmm. I'll give you an example for me because when you guys are talking about like level design and like like using psychology and little things to like kind of guide you where you go, the first village in Resident Evil 4, like that little area before the chainsaw dude busts out of the lighthouse and tries to fucking murder your ass that whole mm-hmm. level like that's exactly what i was thinking of when you guys were talking about that that would, for me would be like my like the creme to the creme of like level design of like all the little routes you can take when you're running away and all of the thought they put into you know like where they're gonna place all these different things and all the fucking chainsaw people that ruin your whole entire day uh that would be it for me so um I, as far as as far as level design goes, I think uh, I would probably actually reference Silent Cartographer from Halo One. Okay, uh, that is a, an so amazing many, level. Yeah, I, there's so many tiny little choices you can make, like little decisions that you can do on this on this one island. You can you can have the whole little D-Day beach and then turn right around and walk into the security room first and disable the security before you even get there. And there's unique little cutscene that they'll play, and then there's unique di- lines of dialogue that they'll they'll run through. Um, there you have tiny little sub paths that you can go through and you can skip bits of the, the level and then fight the enemies that you skipped on your way back. Um, you have a bunch of little side routes that you can do that will completely change the nature of play. Mm-hmm. Um, like near the end of the level, there's a, um, 
one of the little uh, invisibility prisms that you can pick up and just run around just bashing the grunts and you can basically skip the combat encounter because nobody will know where you are you can just back smash all the all the enemies and just have a have a good old time at it. or you can just bah, 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 kill all of the enemies as you're running through it um and i think the, the the core of level design is creating a space for gameplay to happen. It's knowing the rules of what you can do with the, the level design. So level designers don't just um, create a space absent of anything else. They're saying, okay, I have these guns at my disposal. I have this traversal kit at my disposal, um, these different little mechanics that we can use. How do I make all of these aspects of the game merge together in a way that's going to be interesting, unique, uh, create some surprise, create some choices, and empower the player to do what they want to do. And I feel like that level in Halo does a really good job of demonstrating all of that, especially for a game that was in development in the early 2000s. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting. And that, that one only gets more complicated, I imagine, from a de- developer standpoint, because of how present like the various vehicles were in that level too. Like you could do that whole section, you know, thing on foot, but like, it's a, it's kind of a sandbox really. Um, it, it, it's even though halo one, I would argue a lot of times is fairly linear. Like that level is, it feels sandboxy to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one and then assaults on the control room. Yeah. I would say, so levels I really like, I like levels that kind of like, <clears throat> kind of like twist, kind of like put a cool twist on things. Like things I'm thinking of are like all Gilly Duff from Modern Warfare One, um, uh, Clear House from 2019. Um, what's another one? Effect and Cause from Titanfall Two. Oh yeah. Um, because it's like the like I love Effect and Cause because I think it's the perfect way of how they were able to introduce a whole new mechanic, which is the time shift mechanic. They introduce it to you in like a natural way where it's like, oh, here's all the stuff that's happening. Mm-hmm. And it kind of happens at ran- well, random, um, not really random, like it's, it's planned that way. And they even teach you like, yeah, when you like, for example, you're like walking up like, to the bridge and like the time shift happens and there's enemies that appear and enemies are like, oh, wait, where do you come from? And as a player, you now know, oh, if I do the time, if the time shift happens, like enemies like can see me, but you know, they may not, it's going to take them a second. And then when you get the mechanic, you already know how the time shift works. Um, you know, that environment is going to change <clears throat> and you know, that enemies are going to take a minute to find you. And to me, I thought that was such like a really cool, a really cool thing for him to do just to add in like, hey, let's add in this whole new mechanic that completely flips the game on its head. And, you know, even though like the, the puzzles may not be like incredibly insane, like it's just reasonable stuff where it's like you wall run, time shift, wall run again, or you time shift, fight some enemies, it makes combat really fun. Um, all Gillied Up, I think, was really awesome because... Because, of course, with Modern Warfare, it's all about run and gun, right? Like, you run and shoot, run and shoot. But with, like, all gillied up, it's like, you know, you're trying to sneak past people. I mean, you can shoot them if you want, but you're going to get, like, you know, um, dogpiled on. Yeah. But they really made it really interesting of how they were like, okay, let's actually have you try to sneak through, like, these enemies and these interesting ways to, you know, do all that stuff. So I really love when levels, levels do something like that. I think it's interesting to think about all gillied up now because I'm so far removed from that. Like, I haven't played that in ages. <laughs> but it really is it's uh it's such a like a just a change of pace um it is yeah i it makes me think of what was the was it uh in modern warfare 2 the no russian was obviously like yeah that was a big one yeah crazy um <clears throat> but that's another one of those where like you're so used to like a normal style of gameplay and then all of a sudden they're like nope we're gonna flip this on its head and you're gonna do something you did not expect here you go yeah um and it i mean i don't know about like the technical details really of any of it but i i think it's you know from a player perspective to ha- to have your expectations kind of like put on hold for a second like nope you're gonna learn this new thing we yeah. want to teach you and it's going to be yeah. really fun trust us right like i, I think all gilly yeah. up is it's such a curated experience right like it's not the it is, madness yeah. of throwing grenades and praying to god that you don't get hit by gunfire like it's everything is so precise so yeah that i mean yeah god when did that game come out too- what was that? When did that game come out? Modern Warfare 2005. Yeah. Is it 05? Yeah. God, I was. I, so. I was 14. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was in eighth 
Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. That was one of those. Oh, so 2007. Oh, okay. Seven. All right. Okay, okay. A little older, but yeah, I, I, it's just one of those things where, like, I remember going and picking that up at GameStop locally um, back when you used to actually go to game stores and buy them physically. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I picked it up, and I was, you know, I was just in there. I was like, hey, is there anything good that just recently came out? I wanted to play something new. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, this this just came out. And that was like yeah, before. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know what I was about to get my hands on, right? And I took it home and played yeah. a couple of levels. No and I knew. called my buddy no and I was knew. like, "Dude, you need to go buy this game right now." Uh, yeah, this, the cool thing about Ogre Up too was like, because there's actually a YouTube video that I watched where this guy interviewed the guy who made that level, and he mm-hmm. was saying about how for that level he had to like completely like redo a lot of the the AI. Because of course, before the AI, it's like as soon as they see the player more attack. So he had, I think there's a lot of custom um, scripting that he had to do to get that level to work. And I think at first when he pitched it, they were like, we're not really sure about this, but they let him do it anyway. So, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a lot of custom stuff they had to do to like get that whole thing to work. Yeah. Well, I'm glad mm-hmm. he did because I mean, it turned out really well. And mm-hmm. yeah. And people have been trying to re- recreate that magic since it's happened. I mean, I, they did another level within that vein at least in like the next three modern warfare so yeah uh, it's funny you guys mentioned like the we're talking about like your favorite levels and you guys know them by name because i don't <laughs> i don't know the favorite levels by name what they're called but like you can tell you guys actually care about what you're doing by like like this level by this name and this is kind of like what inspired me to do this and what i'm doing now you know like knowing that stuff by name i think was really cool just just wanted to point that out so, um, man, if if I had an hour tracker that said how many hours I put into Halo, um, I remember in like 2008 when I was very very early on in games, I playing games really. Um, they I, I used the good old X Fire, and I remember looking at my hour tracker, and it was like 300 hours for um, like called a Halo custom edition and like 100 hours or something for like base Halo and I played so much Halo Trial because it just had like Blood Gulch and it had um Blood Gulch was good uh, the, the um, Death Island, Silent Cartographer, um, just those two, the one uh, multiplayer uh, map and the one campaign mission, and I played that to no end, so 100% um, know the name of that map, because I, I can't tell you how many times I ran through it, finding every single secret. Yeah, you bring up Blood Gulch, takes me back, that that was <laughs> so good, and there, what was the, didn't they have one called Beaver Creek that was kind of a small... Yep. Symmetrical map, yeah. Was it really called Battle Creek? Battle Creek, Beaver. Why did I say Beaver Creek? It was also called that. I think it was on different release versions. I think one might have been the Xbox edition, one might have been the PC edition because I've seen both. Okay, maybe you're right. Maybe one of them's like a Master Chief collector. Who who knows? But um, I I specifically remember playing that a lot with like split screen with people, you know, sitting down and uh, uh, yeah. You said Beaver, and I was like, "That's a Halo thing." I remember that. Yeah, I like, oh, thought so. Battle Creek. Okay. Well, yeah, both of them. Um, definitely remember both. Something that I find interesting now that we're talking is that a lot of the the levels that we've been discussing has been they've been kind of older games, or they've been first person shooters, which I would say are generally pretty linear. How does, like, a lot of the, like, everything is an open-world RPG now, like, how does that play into level design? Um, Just from an industry standpoint. Really, for open-world games, I mean, it's one, it's a lot, I mean, it's a lot of content, and it's a thing where, you know, the player can now go whatever they want, right? Um, For me, I kind of think of it as, like, when you're making these different little POIs or, like, points of interest, like, little towns, I kind of think of them as chunks. Um, so it's like, okay, we're going to focus on trying making this small space feel good. We're going to try to make it on this town feel good or this area. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things where I think players now, they want more choice, right? Mm-hmm. Players don't just want to like, you know, make a left, make a right, jump over a rock and then do all this. They won't be able to like go out there and explore the world. I think one game did an excellent example of that, of course, is like Breath of the Wild, where people can like do whatever the hell they want as soon as they hit play. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's a thing where people just want more player choice, which is which is great. But I think really um, there's still a place for like you know linear storytelling and such because you know I think I know for me personally I love open world games, but sometimes I can get a little burnt down from them. 
Like I recently played uh, Stray. It was like a five, six hour, six hour game, and that felt like a really good break from like playing the super giant open world games that have like hundreds of hours of content. Yeah, uh, that makes well, sense that was to like, me. That was Elden like Ring. Yeah, like Elden Ring came out, we were all excited, like, oh, it's a Dark Souls, but it's like open world. Worth, yeah. And then, and then you play it, and then you're like, I kind of wish it wasn't. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I miss that linear part of like the Soulsborne games, and like. I know exactly what you're saying because, like, like I said, like Elden Ring was definitely one of those things for me. Like, I played it and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool," but like, I had no idea where to go. You could do where you could go wherever you want right away, but I wanted that linear break. I guess yeah. you call it. Yeah, trade off. Yeah, there are definitely different ways to handle it. Like one of my one of my favorite open world games would be Borderlands Two, um, because I Good think. One. They have a very strong mix of having the linear curated experience and the just purely open world. Um, because you you have a, a couple of different levers, new knobs that are going to be shifted a bit. Um, you don't get as much of that curated experience generally because when you're in the open world, I can't tell you where to go. I can make some suggestions, um, but ultimately you're going to do what you're going to do. Um Hell, even like Fallout 4, if you want to go to like the very southern marshes, the end game content, um, if you stick with it and shoot an enemy for about an hour, you'll kill them. Yeah. Uh, it'll be hell. You can do it. Yep. Um, good luck finding the Casadors in Vegas, though. Jesus Christ. Um, so uh, you can like, you can you can do all that. Um, but I think Borderlands 2 specifically strikes a very good balance because you'll go into those zones, they'll put you in the hallways, they'll say this dialogue option at this point in time, and um, it'll be a very story-driven game. But then when you're in the open world, um, one of the little dials that you have to tune is how you handle interactivity. Um, a lot of open-world games, MMOs, whatnot, will have their little encounters placed throughout the world, and you know they can kind of get a bit repetitive. Uh, I think... I think Borderlands 2 does do a pretty good job of that, where you'll have some enemies kind of spawn in. Um, they'll have the different zones. They'll have different encounters that you can replay through, and it's a, it's a good time. Uh, I don't think anybody has ever done it better than Fallout New Vegas, though, especially, like, the addition of the hit squads that they'll send after you if you've pissed off Caesar too much. <laughs> it is lovely. That is one of my... So I'm not the biggest Fallout fan, if I'm being honest. I love Bethesda, but I've always been an Elder Scrolls person. I just like I love high fantasy. That's more my my jam. But New Vegas, uh, it's just got a special place. I don't know what it is about that particular formula, but I personally like it way more than mainline Fallout releases. And I, I think part of it has to do with the setting. I thought that that was fabulous, but um, mm. I think that the like faction kind of like uh friction between between the various groups is really interesting because like you said it's not just there when you have to go do a mission right like it it, it kind of sneaks up on you and hunts you down in in various other other places too so uh yeah hell of a game i i think that part of the magic of fallout new vegas kind of lies within how i completed some of the earlier quests Um, because you know there's this whole um, um, quest line that you're supposed to do when you're tracking down um, Benny Mm -hmm. where you go to Novak and you see the dinosaur and then you fight the the wolf guard man and then um, you go through this other chain of events to like legitimately get into New Vegas where you either pay a thousand caps or you hack a robot. Um, that's, that's the intended player path. I've never done that. Um, <laughs> the way that I went through everything was I found a dead NCR guard in like um, Camp Charlie or something, uh, stole his clothes, and then snuck onto the Camp McCarran Air Base, which is where they have the monorail that leads into the city. And I was like, hello, I'm an NCR dude. How are you? And then I took my uh, uniform off in the last like 20 yards up to the uh, to the uh, the monorail, people were shooting at me, and I jumped on the rail and then rode my way into the city. And then everyone was like, "I guess you just exist here now. That's fine." Yeah. Um, so they let you find a bunch of random ways to do anything, like the fact that you can sacrifice one of your companions to be cannibalized in one of the quests. Um, 
with the like beyond the meat, beyond the beef <laughs> quest. Like, there's so much weird stuff that you can do, yep. and so many different ways you can accomplish a, a quest. It's um, it's about letting the player do what they want to do, and I love that. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. I didn't realize actually. I, I was just thinking as you were talking about using disguises. I don't feel like very many games do that for some reason. And I don't know if it's really difficult to script AI to like understand that, you know, hey, if you equip this, then we don't we don't see you. You're invisible to us now. But uh, I don't think of one and it's the hitman. I think, yeah. Kingdom Come Deliverance would let you dress up as the human soldiers and walk into those camps. And as long as you didn't speak to anyone and they realize like, oh, you're an English farm boy, like you could just walk around the camps. Yeah, but 90% of the people that played that game quit because the combat system was dog shit. It wasn't. It was just dog shit on consoles. So, as far as that goes, I think, um, as, as far as, like, how complicated it would be to create, like, a disguise system, I don't, I don't think on hand it would be overall difficult to technically implement. It's about, like, the amount of content that you then have to build. Yeah. Because um, it's not just... Um, saying, oh, hey, wow, I'm one of you, but it's, they react differently. Um, are they going to have unique voice lines? Is there going to be unique options that you now have access to because mm. you've um, snuck in that way? It's, it's the content you're building. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I can probably do that with just like one or two variables where I just say, do you look like the person? And also, do they really, really hate you enough that they don't care that you look like a person? They have wanted posters of you everywhere. Um, That that is all I have to really do technically-wise in order to implement a disguise system. The rest of it is just how does it affect the game? Yeah, that's something I wouldn't... I guess, like, dialogues and, you know, voice acting and all that, too, I imagine is probably a, a fairly... yeah. Big thing to try and put big it. thing, and that's a big thing too. I think one thing for me that I learned when I went from being like a gamer to being a game dev is that, like, of course you're sitting there, the gamer's like, oh, why don't they do this? And then when you become a developer, <laughs> you realize, oh my god, if they even try to do like, if as a gamer you want like these ten things, if they did like half of the first one, that would include like fifty animations, a thousand things of voice log, maybe ten new characters. Like it's a, it's one of those things where like because I've had discussions with people when they talk about stuff and in my head I just start thinking like, oh boy, that's like a lot of stuff that people are gonna have to build. So So interesting that you bring that up. What are your thoughts on all of the crazy backlash? I, I mean I don't know if you guys can speak to this. If you don't want to, we don't have to, but like it it makes me think of as gamers, right, when people got their hands on Cyberpunk and they were like, this is not mm-hmm. what we were expecting right like we we thought this was going to be way different better whatever you want to call it right but that that game that project had to have been gargantuan like i can't imagine the you know what what they was going to be required to put out what was shown in some of those early you know gameplay teasers and stuff i feel like um I feel like a lot of it was kind of CDPR. Um, I, I don't. I'm not going to place blame on who exactly. Uh, maybe it was marketing. Maybe it was executives trying to say we need to look good for stock brokers. Because I'm sure that the uh, the actual devs themselves definitely care about what they're doing and want to make sure they're building the best game possible. I had a great time, and I think that's because I did not listen to a single bit of press. Mm. Um, I just played the game. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it was definitely buggy. I ran into some, to some issues, and I was playing on a bad laptop that can't run more than two pixels on screen at a time without screaming at me. Um, but aside from that, in my kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I when I actually moved on to a desktop tower to play the game, it was fine. I rarely ran into anything. Um, there were just some things where it's like, oh, I probably would have done that differently. Um, or like, you can tell playing through the game that it was originally meant to be a third-person uh, game because mm. they still have like rip motion, which is where it's animation-driven uh, locomotion. Uh, for a lot of the character mechanics, so you'll notice that you kind of you kind of like stumble as you walk, and then in, in a lot of games like Titanfall, when you stop pressing the W key, you stop moving. With this, they kind of like stumble forward a little bit um, to catch the motion. Um, so you can kind of tell 
was built as a third-person game initially. Yeah. Um, so aside from, like, some finicky stuff, like, honestly, it's a really good game. I, I really enjoyed uh, the different things that I was able to do. The combat feels really nice. I, I, uh, I've i definitely played through it a couple of times. I love sorting people to death. Um, yeah, it, so got a lot of, it got a lot of flag when it first came out, and a lot of people were blaming the devs. For it, but like we were sitting, we when we talked about this before too. Uh, I was sitting back and I was just like, I can't foresee the same devs who made The Witcher Three making Cyberpunk not care about what they're doing. Like it had to be yes. the business dudes who have nothing, who have no idea how to actually make games. Like it had to be their kind of call, right? They just wanted to push it out as fast as they could because of the success that The Witcher 3 had, but I think the, you know, the people like you guys, like, who are the game devs behind the scenes, like, they wanted to make another Witcher 3, you know, a very quality yeah. product, a game people fall in love yeah. with. You can yeah, you can tell playing The Witcher 3 that heart and soul from every single person was in that, right? Um, it yeah, also yeah. doesn't hurt that, you know, the, there was so much, like, source material, let's say, right, to follow, but those are, I mean... Even The Witcher 2, honestly, I don't know how many of you all played it, but I, I played through that game probably five or six times, and I I thought that it, I mean, it's just, there was so much detail and lore and cool, you know, gameplay mechanics and things like that, so I agree with you, DJ. I think, you know, to assume that, and granted, you know, there's turnover in every studio, so it's, it's not the exact same devs, but um, for the studio that brought you projects like that to be, you know, that were so amazing and and full of love, so to speak, right? Like to get something that it didn't feel that way initially. Um, well, it's a byproduct of it was being motivated odd. to make money off a game. I will say I didn't actually play cyberpunk until the like PS five upgrade version mm-hmm. came out and yeah, it's, same. it's fine now. Like I, I had a blast with it. I haven't finished it, um, but it, it is a really good game. And you know, if anybody out there's, considering picking it up and you heard the horror stories it's probably fine as long as you're not on like ps4 it's good now yeah. it's good now i played when it first came out and uh it was it was like sandpaper to my asshole like it fucking hurt <laughs> playing that game dude i, I oh man now i have to make an edit dj damn it <laughs> <laughs> I did have kidding. some bugs in like the first sequence where I just literally like when you're doing that car chase after you know, like the first or second mission or something with a pistol um, shotgun. Yeah, yeah. I, I literally couldn't shoot and people were loading in and everything, but that was like, that was the worst of it. It was weird that it was in like the first hour or something, but that was, that was the worst of my experience. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, we're going to we're going to move on from from Cyberpunk and all of my random side questions here. Um, <laughs> with you guys had, at home, we oh, plan this very loosely. It's like we have like only four questions written down, but as you can tell, more than four have been asked and that's yeah. kind of like the whole point of this <laughs> organic conversation here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to plan I'm all this gonna, out. Yeah, we're not going to stop a conversation from progressing just because it doesn't stick to our fucking outline. Uh, So the next one that we just wanted to ask you guys is, as game devs, have you ever put in any Easter eggs? And if so, like, where can, like, what were they? Well, what's your favorite Easter egg you've ever built? Oh, big fingers. I'm trying to think, because the last project I was on... I can't even talk about it when I was oh, okay. in my last studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I had, yeah, that went through some stuff. But um, so I know once I was with interns at my first um, job at Hangar 13, and we talked about, like, putting in, like, um, like our names, like, around the levels, stuff like that, just to hide to see anyone would try to find it. Mm. But, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, that did it. Yeah, we, well, I don't think we actually got a chance to do it because we were so busy. But that was something we thought about doing, but um, time just didn't allow us to. What game was that? Can't say. Oh, you can't say. Okay, no problem. Yeah, NDAs. NDAs, NDAs hit different, bro. I hear you. No, I hear you. <laughs> Trust us. We're we're we are we are we. Oh my God, fucking words. We are well versed in NDAs. We know all about them. <laughs> I'm trying to think because, like, I I've done level design. Uh, I did level design teaching, and then I've done level design for some personal projects. Uh, for Ruby Shark, I'm more of like the um, creative director slash like tech dude. So I've not built any levels myself, so I don't have any in, in there. Um, 
I feel like I've done some for student projects way back in the day. Mm. Yeah. Um, or for like hobbyist stuff when I was first getting started. Um, but none that I can deliberately remember. Okay. No worries. No worries. I remember I tried to convince Nathan to put in a very particular um, Easter egg into Ruby Shark, though. What, what is it? I want to know. What was it? I, I, can't, I can't talk about it. It's, it's kind of mean. <laughs> I forgot what it was. I think uh, it's, been, it's been a minute. I just talked about sandpapering my asshole. I'm pretty sure mean is fine. Uh, nah, nah. Also, Tyler, I apologize to your wife for me. That, no. I was, just, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> I was like, well, one time we'll let it go, but twice. Um <laughs> Anyway, no. So, all right, yeah. Let's let's move on. Um, I, I think this this is this is actually getting into some more more meaningful stuff, and I, I think that this would be of interest to people who, you know, maybe you're a student or someone who's been in a career for a long time and just want to break into the gaming industry. But, um, I mean, do you guys have any advice for for folks that are are looking to get into it? Like, what what is what are some of the preferred pathways in? Um, you know, any resources, anything like that that you guys recommend? Um, man, preferred pathways. Well, one thing about games, there's really no, it's there's really no like set pathway to get into games. Um, we've all gone in through different ways. I gone through an internship. Um, really, you know, Kyle got in through QA. I know people who've gotten in like through friends or family and stuff. So, but I think one thing I would tell people if you really want to get into games, um, like kind of do like a Ruby Shark thing, right? Where like you get together with some friends, you're like, hey guys, we want to, let's make this thing proper folks. The thing about the game industry, if you want to break in, like you have to have good work. Um, yeah. I I feel like it doesn't matter who you know. I mean, of course it matters who you know, but like, I don't care if you know like the game director of like, you know, the biggest place to in the world or you have all your friends to play. If you don't have the work to show it, like no one's going to give you a chance on that. You know what I mean? So I would say, you know, get together with some friends, do a Ruby Shark, make a Ruby Shark game together, figure out what you want to get into as a whether you're a designer, artist, or programmer, and just like make things that, you know, make things that show off what you want to do. And then like having those friends and everything will then help you get a job because someone will be like, hey, like for example, the studio I'm at, I'm at now, I got on there because, you know, Kyle referred me um, to, a, to a job. And when I got laid off, it was like a week later, they were like, hey, we want to interview you. And then within like a day, I had like a new job. So, you know, that's amazing. because I had, yeah, but because I had, but because I had like good work, that was why Kyle was like, yeah, Nathan knows what he's doing. Let me refer him again and try to get him into stuff like that. So I just makes me like, just make stuff, make really good stuff. Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed when I was like researching you guys and some other people we've interviewed is uh, resumes aren't as valuable as like art station like documents like i've seen your guys art stations and for different people i've interviewed and it's like hey this is it, it, visuals of like hey this is what i've done and i think that probably speaks more than like a resume for I yeah. your guys' work line of work i uh i definitely agree with what nathan was saying um because you know people ask me both both nathan and i will review people's portfolios pretty frequently um we're in a big old design discord where we um, talk to people who are aspiring to get into games and we'll, we'll look at their stuff, give them advice. And a lot of people ask stuff like, oh, should I go to university? Should I put my university GPA on there? And I got like a 3.39 going through university, which is nothing wild. And then I know other people who got a 4.0 um, who are valedictorians and they never really made it into games. Um, nobody, nobody cares what your GPA is. I, I care what you can do. Honestly, I don't even care what university you went to. Yep. Um, the the strength of a university is a guided learning experience and the strength of the, of the alumni network. So if you see that a university is outputting grads who know what they're doing and is also getting people hired, that's what you care about. I don't care if it's fucking Harvard. I don't care if it's um, a like a local... 5,000 person university or something. It, it really doesn't matter. It just matters if they know people and if they produce good candidates. Yeah. Um, yeah. Overall, I, I, I like care work, what you can do. I feel like the work ethic has to be there too. I feel like work ethic in your guys, especially in your guys' line of field, because there's so many variables and avenues you have to go through and like little detail things just to make one little thing. Like there's so much, almost like, I want to call it extra work, but there's a lot of right. work that goes into such a 
like a small little piece of like this puzzle that is games. Like I think work ethic probably by speaks volumes in your guys' industry. Right. Yeah. And um, I think taking time to self-reflect a bit too, because um, I know everyone, everyone I know has seen people who will go on LinkedIn and they'll complain about not having a job. Meanwhile, they're doing nothing to improve their situation. And I, I empathize with them and I feel bad for them, especially because a lot of them, it's kind of out of their control where they may have really busy lives. Like maybe they're working at like a, a warehouse where they don't have free time. Um, but it's, it's kind of, it's kind of difficult because no matter how many revisions you make to your resume, it's not going to change anything. You need to show that you can do work. Yeah. I even tell people too, like when it, cause the game industry also is really fucking hard to get into. Um, <laughs> I, I graduated my master's in May of 2020 from Michigan state. And I didn't get my internship with hangar 13 until June, 2021. Um, I had friends who had, I had a friend of mine who was a character artist who had like one of the most beautiful photos I've ever seen. It took him two years to get a job. Um, a lot of people, like I would tell a lot of students, people who are hobbyists, like trying into games. And it's not like, you know, like, you know, there are some industries where, you know, you can have a degree and within like a month or two of graduate, you may get a job, right? But with mm-hmm. games, one of those things were like, if you get a job when you're about to graduate or soon after, then you are like really, really lucky because some people who I've seen some people's portfolios, um, who have like amazing portfolios and it's just one of those things where they're like, well, what am I doing wrong? Is my work not good? It's like, no, your work's good. You just have to honestly just keep applying to jobs and keep pushing it. Um, yeah. cause yeah, I was in that spot too, where I was, I, I, there was a year I was like, man, is my work not good? Am I not doing something right? And everyone who saw my portfolio was like, your work's great. And I'm like, why does no one hire me? But it's just, there's so many people that want to get into this industry. You just got to kind of keep shooting your shot until it eventually lands, which it will eventually land. This may take longer than you hope. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, go ahead. Yeah, you, you definitely need, do need to be working on, on your, your stuff for sure. Um, working on your stuff and applying. Um, because, okay, for me, I graduated March, 7, March of 2020. Sorry, March of 2017. Um, I started teaching pretty shortly after that. And then I didn't get my first industry role um, until I was QA at um, Tiburon February of 2020. And then... Until it was February until September. In September, I landed my first design role. Yeah. Um, so it definitely took a while to get there. Um, but in addition to applying to jobs, I was also working on my stuff, um, getting better at yeah, uh, demonstrating what I, what I could do, talking about what I knew I could do, and... Um, just continuing to learn and actually focusing on what I wanted to do. Yeah. So something that I was going to ask, but I, I think um, Nathan, you kind of spoke to this already was I think, why does it take so long? Because it, in most industries, right. Especially if you show up with a master's, um, it's, they're not that, you know, there's not huge, huge wait lines to get in, but I was curious if it was just sheer volume, because it's just like so many people trying to get in. And a lot of oh, these man. teams are small. Although there's so many studios that I can think of now that are, you know, huge. Like, I mean, yeah. EA. So for that, it's like, for that, because it's like, especially now, I think with games, because um, so bad. Now you have full universities, right, that have entire game programs, uh, mm-hmm. really solid game programs, especially amazing students. Um, YouTube has thousands upon thousands of tutorials now, right? You can just learn Unreal and Unity, Maya, whatever you want to do to learn. Um, and I think it's one of the things where it's like, there's just so many people out there that are now want to get in. Like, for example, I had a friend of mine who was an intern in Activision and at one point she talked to a recruiter and they told her that for one internship, they had over 1200 applicants. Um, I've seen some, I've heard of some that had that over like 900 or to a thousand or even to like a thousand more. I think even one person to me, one, one studio I think it's more with Activision. They had like 10,000 for like some positions as well. So it's just one of those things where like, and the thing is like trying to get an intro, an intro position, because I kind of think about it like this, like you think about it, like think about like the top 25 schools, right? Universities that graduate students, let's say they graduate like at least three designers. Um, what 25 times three is like a hundred probably. Oh, it's like 75. Right. So if you, if they all apply different studios, like say if like they all apply to one studio, like in a day, a studio can only hire one person. And juniors and, and associate roles, like intro level roles, 
are going to be like a dime a dozen within our industry because, um, you know, some, it just depends on the studio and where the project's at. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of those things where there's so many people that just want to get into it, but it's just not enough jobs to accommodate everybody. Yeah. My, um, the university that I graduated from probably produces about 30 something, maybe 50, 60 students, um, a month, um, between the online ca uh, classes and the on-campus classes per, per month. And there are not that many junior roles opening up. Um, yeah, there's just not that many junior roles opening up. So if no other universities existed and uh, that university was producing qualified candidates every month, like every single one of them, uh, we'd already have a surplus. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. That, um, that makes sense. Factor into that, the people who are trying to get into this is uh, hobbyists. Um, the people who are just using YouTube and whatnot to, to learn. Um, there are just so many people and so few roles open. Do you feel yeah, like... Almost, I, I think literally all of us had something to say. Go ahead. Um, someone else. <laughs> I, I'll go. So just because we, we just talked to uh, our last interview, which was like two days ago with Mark Gregory. He didn't go to any university. He got his start by modding. Building like mods. Just, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So he's just modding yeah. games and the point I was trying to make is like your guys' profession like it it almost is absolute passion. A lot of people don't go into it for the money because like it, unless you're really high up it probably doesn't pay it too well. Right? It's a like a passion project like for your career like he started out he was in IT for 18 years and he was modding games on the side and like he just had this drive and like this passion to actually make games and he didn't like I said he didn't go to any university he just was modding games and he finally just quit his 18 year career to you know make games and I think that speaks volumes to like you guys profession um, a lot of people think like older generations probably think like making games is silly but I mean honestly I'm I'm fucking jealous of you guys. I really wish that I had like that kind of drive to, you know, sit there and calculate every minute little detail on every level or every program. Like it, that takes a lot. And uh, you guys get shit on all the time. On, yeah. like, One bad and release internet. and everyone's setting it on fire. So, and I like, I just want to say like from a consumer standpoint, like we really do like appreciate everything you guys do. All, all game developers across all AAA platforms, indie platforms, like you guys really bust your ass just so we can decompress that, you know, in the evenings and have a good time with friends or by ourselves, you know. It is interesting, actually, to think about how much work goes into something. That I mean, it's the movie industry too, right? But you think about, like, how much goes into building, you know, that piece of art that you're going to go enjoy for two and a half hours, right? Just so that you can, like, go decompress for a little bit. But, like, how many people are working on that for years, um, how much oh, money God. gets spent? You know what I mean? So it, it's really interesting to think about pieces of art and pieces of entertainment that are built that are, I mean, they're finite things. Like they're not generally infinite unless it's Fortnite and then it just goes on forever apparently. But, um, you know, it, it, yeah, I mean, I, I think just to echo what DJ saying that is that we appreciate the, the drive and, and the, uh, you know, the passion that you guys are show for, for all the stuff that, you know, we really love to do. So, um, yeah, especially us, for us two, like we're both dads, you know, like fathers. So like, video games is kind of all we got. Yeah, it's our decompression for sure. And, and the other thing too, I mean, and this is not just for military folks, but because I mean, we're prior military, a lot of our friendships are long distance. Like you, you know, you meet people and they go off to do another duty station or ship across the world or whatever. And games is like such a social thing nowadays. So, um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what else I can really say about it other than the fact that I, I'm glad that we have people out here creating this stuff because I don't know what I would do, you know, friendship wise. And, and I guess I'd have to go meet people and that sounds awful. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, let, but I tell you what, before we, we wrap this up, guys, um, tell us a little bit about your current project. Um, and it doesn't have to be long or you guys can talk about it as long as you want. But what are you working on? Where can we find you? Um, you know, tell tell people where to find what you guys are, are creating. You can go first, Kyle. 
Okay. Um, yeah, so we're working on uh, Mantra. It's a Titanfall 2-inspired first-person shooter. Uh, we're borrowing a lot of inspiration from a lot of different games. Um, we're on Twitter at, at RubyShot Games, and we're also on Steam. If you look up Mantra, we're the first result. Um, yeah, we're making, we're making something that I hope people will uh, enjoy. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I, I know we were mentioning it earlier, but I think... Uh, the fact that it's Titanfall two inspired is, is going to resonate with, you know, a community of folks out there. I think there were a lot of us that really love those games and we're kind of sad to see, uh, see the decline, but Nathan, yeah. Anything to add or you all good? No, nah, man, just thanks for having us on here, man. It's been a lot of fun talking to y'all, you know, just kind of shooting the shit. Yeah. It's been pretty, pretty fun. Yeah. Well, we aim to, uh, shoot the shit you know, as well as anyone else out there. So, uh, thanks for joining us and, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up then. Hey, you guys have a good night. <laughs>